Good morning to you, and a warm welcome to any visitors. As I look out, I see a few. Uh, Let me direct just a couple of comments to you who are visiting just quickly. Uh, It's possible you've come without a Bible. If you need one, look around. They're there. I'm not talking about the Bible sitting in the lap of the person next to you, but if you look under the chairs, there are usually two or three Bibles there, there for you to use. Don't be bashful. Just stretch over and grab it because you're going to need it. Uh, Second comment for you, uh, the bulletin. When you open it up and you get all of those inserts out of the way, you'll see something jumping off the page, sermon notes, spiritual paralysis, 1 Samuel 14. And so those are there for you to help you as we study God's Word together to be able to follow my thought flow anyway, where I'm starting, where I'm going, and where I'm going to end up. So again, if you're visiting, very warm welcome to you. If you don't have a Bible, find one. They're there. And please avail yourself of these sermon notes. I'm sure the Lord will bless them to you. And so to that end, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, In literature, there is such a thing uh, as contrast. It's a literary device that some authors use whereby they, they set two things. Normally, two characters, two people in opposition. And they do this for a very simple purpose. It's to highlight differences. It is to emphasize uh, the distinction, to differentiate between, between two people, between two characters, in order to emphasize something. The Bible uses this literary device, contrast. It uses it a lot. And in particular, it uses it on several occasions to highlight the difference between two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Paul describes them in Romans 8. He speaks over here of those people, men and women, boys and girls, who walk according to the flesh. And that means their mind is set on the flesh. That means they're still in Adam, meaning what? Self-love is the governing principle in their lives. There is, on the other hand, a second group of people, of those who walk according to the Spirit. They have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. They are all those people who are in Christ. And they are marked, they are characterized, governed by what? Love for, love for God. And so this is a marked contrast, which Paul makes in Romans chapter 8. And the Bible employs contrast, this literary device, to give us pictures. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? To give us pictures to illustrate this. And so we have, for example, way back in the book of Genesis, Cain... And Abel. There's a man who walks according to the flesh. There's a man who walks according to the spirit. You fast forward in the book of Genesis, and we come to Ishmael and Isaac. There's a man who walks according to the flesh. There's a man who walks according to the spirit. We come to Esau and Jacob. You getting the idea? There's a man who walks according to the flesh. His mind is set on the things of the flesh. And there's a man whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit, who walks, who lives according to the Spirit. When we come to 1 Samuel 14, the author of this book employs contrast to emphasize that same point which Paul makes in Romans chapter 8. But it isn't a contrast between brothers, Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. It's a contrast between a father and a son. A contrast between Saul and Jonathan. It is a literary device whereby the author 
sets these two characters side by side in opposition in order to stress, highlight, emphasize the differences. And so we read in this chapter that Saul hides himself. Jonathan shows himself. Saul stays back. Jonathan crosses over. Saul lies low. Jonathan climbs up. Saul avoids the enemy. Jonathan engages the enemy. Saul looks to himself. And here's the key point. Saul looks to himself. Jonathan looks to God. Why? Because ultimately, in the final analysis, Saul is a man whose mind is set on the flesh, self-love. Whereas Jonathan is a man whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit, love for for God. Last Sunday, we focused in on part of that equation, part of that contrast. We looked at Jonathan, and we honed in on verse 6. Just turn there for a moment, and just by way of reminder, what do we read? Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's a rather nasty reference to the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so there is the governing principle in Jonathan's life. There is the truth, the principle by which Jonathan orients his life. God's unhindered power, but not merely God's unhindered power, but God's just liberty, or what we might call God's sovereign grace. It may be that the Lord will work for us. That is the principle, that is the truth, that is the reality by which Jonathan orients his life. In marked contrast, we have his father. We have Saul. And when we come to Saul and we look closely at Saul, beginning in chapter 13 and carrying on into chapter 15, what do we discover? We discover a man who does not orient his life according to the glory of God, but a man who orients his life according to his own self-love and personal indulgence. We discover a man whose mind is set on the flesh. We discover a man who lives for, for self this marked contrast. To put it, to use the word of the, of the sermon title, it's right there in your bulletin. We find a man who is suffering from what? Spiritual paralysis. Spiritual paralysis. Uh, last Sunday, if you were here, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you were here, I left you on a merry-go-round last Sunday. Do you remember that? Those of you who were here, no, you're looking blankly at me. I left you on a merry-go-round, and I gave the illustration of a merry-go-round by way of describing spiritual paralysis that some of us find ourselves on a merry-go-round. Round Round and round we go, never going anywhere. That's certainly true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever is marked, characterized by spiritual paralysis, spiritual inertia, spiritual malaise, going nowhere. Sadly, it is even true at times of believers, those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They find themselves on a merry-go-round, suffering from spiritual paralysis. Back in March, we vacationed in, in Florida for a week. And for a day, we went with the family to uh, Bush Gardens. And uh, I took uh, Emma on a merry-go-round. And on we went to this merry-go-round, had her in arm. And uh, I walked up to this big black stallion. And my plan was to get onto this big black stallion with Emma on my lap and enjoy the merry-go-round. To my horror, I'd had my foot maybe over the saddle, and this voice comes over the loudspeaker. Uh, The man with the blue cap, that was me wearing a blue cap, Uh, would you please place your daughter on one of the horses in the middle row and stand beside her? Horrified. You know what the horses in the middle row are? They're the stationary ones. They're the ones that don't even go up and down. Emma loved it. I'm scarred for life. Merry-go-rounds. They're round, but they are not very merry. 
Friend, I ask you to be honest with yourself this day. Does that describe you? Does that describe your life? Unbeliever, you're a non-Christian. You do not profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't pretend otherwise. That is a description of your life. You are going nowhere, and you're going nowhere fast. You are suffering from spiritual paralysis. Even some professing believers here this day, it is possible that this is a description of your predicament for days, weeks, months, dare I say, years. That as you take a quick survey, as you compute the facts and the numbers in your head, you realize that it has been a long time since you have gone anywhere. And you're simply spinning. You are simply going in circles. Well, we're going to look at Saul, this man suffering from, struggling with spiritual paralysis. We're going to ask some hard questions. And I beg of you to give attention to what God's Word says as it addresses this issue, this predicament, head on. I'm going to begin reading in verse 23. We looked at the first 23 verses last Sunday. By way of review, real quick, it's simple. There's a battle going on. A battle between the Israelites over here, the Philistines over here. We've stepped back in history 3,000 years. The Israelites are no match, humanly speaking, for the Philistines. The Israelites haven't even entered the Iron Age, and so they're hiding. They're hiding in wells, tombs, anywhere they can find cover. They are hiding from these Philistines. Even their king, Saul, is hiding. Spiritual paralysis. But his son, Jonathan, note the contrast, he sneaks away. He engages a Philistine garrison in battle. He's victorious, and the Lord uses him to bring a resounding victory to the Israelites over the Philistines. That brings us to verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. 
And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Literary device contrast between Jonathan, on the one hand, whom we considered last Lord's Day, and Saul, whom we're going to consider now. A man suffering from, a man struggling with spiritual paralysis. We're going to ask four questions. Let me give them to you right now. No surprises at the outset. What is the cause of his spiritual paralysis? We want to answer that question. What is the cause? Where does it come from? Question number two, what is the fruit? And as I was thinking of that this morning, I think I can, I can word that better. What are the marks? That's a better way of putting it. What are the marks of his spiritual paralysis? Question number three, what is the effect, the result, consequences, repercussions? And number four, what is the solution? And so we're going to work our way through, wind our way through these four questions and the answer to these four questions as they emerge from this text. And I pray that by the Spirit of God, the Spirit will speak to you through the Word this day. And if you find yourself aligning with Saul, if you identify yourself as sitting in, standing in, suffering from a similar predicament, then I beg of you, give heed to God's Word. And give heed to the lessons and the truths which emerge from this text. And so here we go. Question number one. What is the cause of his spiritual paralysis? The answer summed up in one word, disobedience. We need to look no further than chapter 13. Just flip back there. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. This is what precipitated the entire battle. Uh, Jonathan, Saul, there they are with their men, thousand, couple thousand men. Jonathan decides to attack a Philistine garrison. When he attacks this Philistine garrison, word spreads back to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines muster an enormous army, an army which numbers like the sand of the sea. They enter into Israelite territory looking for a fight. The Israelites can't put together a standing army. Saul is cowering. The people begin to flee from him. The people begin to abandon him. And Saul then decides to do something which he should never have done in a million years. Samuel has told him to wait. 
He has told him to wait at Gilgal. He has told him to wait seven days. And when the time is fulfilled, Samuel will come and Samuel will offer the necessary burnt offerings, peace offerings prior to the battle. Samuel is delaying. The seven days is drawing near to a close. The Philistines are all around enveloping them. The Israelites are disappearing. They're dissipating. They're abandoning Saul. And so what does Saul do? He takes it upon himself to offer that sacrifice. As soon as he has done so, verse 10, what happens? Samuel arrives. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Now notice Saul's response. It is telling. It is very informative. Notice three things. The first is this. Saul acts as if nothing is wrong. Look at the rest of verse 10. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. No problem here. Nothing wrong here. Nothing to see here. Samuel's arrived. Far as Saul is concerned, all is well. All is as usual. And off he goes to greet him. Second thing I want you to notice is this. He accuses Samuel of breaking his promise. Verse 11, Samuel challenges him. What have you done? Saul replies, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed. In other words, Samuel, we wouldn't be having this conversation if you had arrived on time. My disobedience, in actual fact, in retrospect, is your fault. I never would have done what I had done if you had been here. And so he is shifting blame. He accuses Samuel of breaking his promise. And what's the third thing Saul does? He justifies his disobedience. How? Verse 12, first of all, he turns his disobedience into discernment. Verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me, against us. In other words, Samuel, I just, I, just took, I just weighed the circumstances and the prevailing condition. Israelites are disappearing. My people are disappearing. Philistines are all around us. They're about to attack us. What you call disobedience, I call discernment. I had to offer the sacrifice because the circumstances and prevailing conditions dictated that I did. And what's the second thing he does there in verse 12? He turns his disobedience into an act of devotion. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. You see, we all know how important it is to seek the favor of the Lord before we go off into battle. And I'm a very pious man, Samuel. And I know what God requires of me. And I know it's necessary to offer that sacrifice. And so, Samuel, what you call disobedience, I actually call discernment. And Samuel, what you call disobedience, I actually call devotion. Samuel will have none of it. Verse 13, he said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have done foolishly. Here's the thing, and I don't want us to miss this. This is an open, clear, carrying, clarion call. I mean, this is a painful rebuke. Please do not miss this. Saul never repents. Saul never, ever repents of this act of disobedience. He acts as if nothing is wrong, very flippant in his attitude. He shifts, casts blame to Samuel. If you had been here, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And he actually tries to turn his blatant act of disobedience into an act of discernment and into an act of devotion. But this man refuses to repent. And that becomes indicative. That becomes characteristic of this, the remainder of this man's life, the remainder of this man's reign. And until the day he dies, Saul's death is recorded incidentally in chapter 31. So there's a lot coming still when it comes to, in terms of Saul and his character and his behavior. 
But until the day he dies, as recorded in chapter 31, Saul lives an increasingly fearful, fretful, unhappy, anxious, chaotic, sleepless, troubled life. Why? Hear these words carefully. His disobedience makes him emotionally miserable. His disobedience makes him emotionally miserable. And here is a man who has just jumped on the merry-go-round, and he is spinning around in circles, and he is going nowhere, suffering from spiritual paralysis. Why? His disobedience and his unwillingness to repent. I'm guessing that describes one or two here, maybe even more than that. Come on now. I'm guessing that describes a lot of people here. When it comes to emotional misery and our emotional troubles and emotions which are are afraid, uh, dealing with with guilt, we will will do what Saul does. That is our our knee-jerk reaction. That's our immediate response. And, And we will do all the time. We do these two things. The first is this. We will try to explain away our sin. That's what Saul does. We'll just try to explain it away and try to ignore it. And we do that. We do that in many ways. Don't misunderstand me, but I don't have time to go into the multitude of ways in which we do this. I just want to emphasize one which is extremely, extremely prevalent today. We do this by buying into a prevalent lie which is out there. You know what that prevalent lie is? Simply this. You're a good person. Uh, Years ago, early 90s, there was a book written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. Oh, how did the title go? When when bad things happen to good people. That was it. When bad things happen to good people. How did he define a good person? A good person is a nice, friendly neighbor. That's how most of us view ourselves. I dare say that's how most of us view goodness. To be good is to be a nice, friendly neighbor. When bad things happen to good people, only one problem with that title, there are no good people. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that there are none who do good. There are none good. There are none who are righteous. There are none who fear God. No, not one. We have all become useless, and we have turned aside. We have turned away from God. And yet to avoid repentance... To avoid dealing with our sin, this is a lie we will buy into. And the lie is this, I'm nice. I'm a nice, friendly neighbor when bad things happen to good people. The Bible makes it clear that in actual fact, we are anything but good. We are consumed with materialism, for starters. We are consumed with image, personal image. How do I look to others? How am I perceived? What do people think of me? Consumed with worry consumed with the pursuit of personal comfort, consumed with lust, envy, anger, bitterness, consumed with addictions, not just substance abuse, pornography, social media, so many different addictions. We're abused to sexual indulgence. We are consumed with it. We're consumed with destructive habits and patterns in the way we live and the way we think. To avoid spiritual paralysis, here is a reality and is a harsh reality. We must get serious about our sin. We must be serious when it comes to our sin and reject that lie 
reject that prevailing mindset, even among Christians, many of whom view their lives as a cup half full. That yes, I've done some bad things. Yes, I've committed some errors. But basically, deep down inside, I'm still a pretty good person, still an upright person, still a nice neighbor, a nice fellow. But the testimony of Scripture is the exact opposite, that we stand before God riddled with our sin. We stand before God dead in our trespasses and sins, and we dare not explain it away, but understand how serious it is in God's sight. Second thing we do is this, we explain away our sorrow. We explain away our sorrow. Why? Because we've bought into another lie. This is a lie which our society preaches wholesale. And even many Christians struggle with, even uh, perhaps some in, in, in our church here, Grace Community Church, struggle with. The lie is this. We can live as we please and still feel good about it. That's a lie which our society preaches and proclaims in our day. We can live as we please and still, still feel good about it. In other words... As far as our society is concerned, emotional misery is unrelated to behavior. There's no connection. There's no relationship between the two. Emotional misery is unrelated to behavior. And you can live, you can do, you can choose to do whatever you like and still feel good about it. Saul teaches us the exact opposite. Uh, That act of disobedience in chapter 13 And we fast forward through the remainder of his life, and what do we discover? We see a man who is increasingly unpredictable. A man who suffers from severe mood swings. A man who is sleepless. A man who struggles with violent episodes. A man who is irrational. A man who has isolated his loved ones. Please hear what I say and listen to it carefully all the way through. And please do not tune me out. If Saul were alive today, do you know what we would do? We would label him depressed and medicate him. Saul is the poster boy, the poster child for clinical depression. No, Saul is a man who is willfully disobedient, and his willful disobedience has resulted in his emotional misery. Now, do not tune me out. Do not check me out. Is there such a thing as clinical depression? Yes, there are all sorts of biological reasons for it and any number of diseases which contribute to it. There are hormonal issues, certainly. There are thyroid, thyroid issues, yes. Lots of, lots of reasons for clinical depression. But according to the card, cold hard facts, do you know of 90%, these are, these are the most recent statistics, of all diagnosed cases of clinical depression today are in actual fact simply circumstantial sadness. People who are just sad. Why? Because of the circumstances in which they find themselves. Because of life's conditions. But you see, our society gives us another lie. It tells us sadness is inherently bad. It tells us sadness is inherently evil. Actually, sadness is a gift from God because it's designed to what? Drive us to God. That's not what our society believes. And so because of this belief, because of this belief, anybody feels sad, what do we do? We immediately medicate them. But 90% of those diagnosed with clinical depression in our day are actually suffering from struggling with circumstantial sadness. And of them, many are struggling with emotional misery 
which is a direct result of behavior. Willful disobedience, I guarantee it. I'd bet the farm on it if I had a farm. Willful disobedience always leads to emotional misery. I hope I've tried to word that carefully. I am not denying the reality of clinical depression. We dare not deny that, not at all, by any stretch of the imagination. We also need to be careful to acknowledge that, that many people, I mean, our dispositions and our temperaments are different, aren't they? Some people are just not as happy, clappy as other people. That um, there are a few Eeyores out there, right? We're not all Piglet or Pooh or Tigger. We're not all Tigger. There are Eeyores out there walking around with a tail nailed to our derriere. That's French for Glutus Maximus. They, just have a, they don't have a sunny disposition. They have the opposite. That's their temperament. That's their disposition. We acknowledge that. And we acknowledge the harsh, sad, difficult reality and burden of clinical depression. But what I, what my, my, fear, my fear in our day is this, that too many of us are far too quick to do what? Not only explain away our sin, but explain away our sorrow and deny this reality, a reality so prevalent in the life and in the example and in the experience of Saul, that willful disobedience always, always, always leads to emotional misery. And when we understand those two realities, our sin, what we are before a holy God, and the accompanying guilt, that is that cry and sentence of condemnation, and the emotional misery which accompanies sin, there's an individual who's ready to repent, but there's a road that Saul never goes down. There's, a Saul, there's Saul struggling from spiritual paralysis. A man who refuses to acknowledge his sin, deals seriously with his sin, but a man who will explain it away as quickly as he can, shift blame as quickly as he can, and actually try to turn his sin into an act of righteousness, an act of discernment, an act of devotion. That is a sure mark of spiritual paralysis. Second question is this. What is the fruit of spiritual paralysis. Here we're talking about the marks. There are four. The first three are tied to three oaths. In chapter 14, Saul makes three oaths. The first, in verse 24, look at what he says there. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Here we have mark number one of spiritual paralysis. Saul shows his selfishness. Why does he make this oath? What is he thinking? What is going through this man's mind at this exact, this precise moment? Look carefully at his words. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Saul is making this all about him. Here is a man who is self-absorbed. Here is a man who is egotistical, and how this will become so evident and prevalent from here until the day he dies, here is a man whose basic functioning principle is his love of self, egotistical. Robert Louis Stevenson, one of my favorite authors, a Scotsman, that's not the only reason, but one of my favorite authors, he died on the island of, uh, of Samoa, South Pacific, early 40s. 
He was sickly his entire life. I think he finally died of tuberculosis, something like that, and penned a number of books. But while he was on the island of Samoa, uh, there was a pastor's training institute there. And the leader of this pastor's training institute asked Robert Louis Stevenson to come speak and address the students. Robert Louis Stevenson wasn't a Christian. His house, his parents were Calvinistic Presbyterian, but he kind of rejected it. And yet Robert Louis Stevenson in his writings had such a profound insight into human nature and human character, had such a profound insight into theology, which would shame many believers, and had, just had a firm grasp on the Christian message. And even in what he had said to the, at this institute, you see him still wrestling with his, his history and his upbringing, his Christian faith. And so he addressed these ministers, and he told them the story of the veiled prophet. I don't know if he made it up or if this was a, a story out there that he grabbed and latched onto, or one of the ones that he had invented with his imagination. But the veiled prophet was this man, he said, who wandered through all the villages and towns near where he lived, and uh, he would preach different truisms and different practical lessons and all of that, but he wore a veil. And he would explain to people that the reason why he wore a veil was because he spent so much time in God's presence. It's a takeoff from Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. That this veiled prophet spent so much time in God's presence that the glory of the Lord was shining forth from his countenance, reflected in his face. And, and the Lord's glory, as reflected by his face, was too, too bright, too much for the average person to behold and to see. Hence, he wore this, this veil for their sake, for their benefit. After a few years, the veil began to war, began to decay. And on one day, when he wasn't paying attention, the veil slipped away. And to their horror, the people discovered not God's countenance, not the light of God's glory, but they simply discovered an ugly old man, an ugly old man. And Robert Louis Stevenson's point was simply this. Sooner or later in our lives, sooner or later in our experience, the veil falls away because we all wear it. Sooner or later, though, the veil falls away. And Robert Louis Stevenson's question was this. What do people see? Do they see the ugly face of unmortified egotism? Or do they see the transformed glory of Christ-likeness? You see, with Saul, the veil is slowly falling away. And he is showing what he truly is inside. He is a man absorbed with himself. He is a man. In this incident, that oath, that oath unmasks him. He is a man who is trying to hide God in his own shadow. He is a man who is trying to force God to play second fiddle, a mark of spiritual paralysis, selfishness. Second mark tied to the second oath. It comes out in verse 39. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, again, it's Saul speaking, though it be in Jonathan my son, so they discover something is wrong. Because the Lord won't respond to the prophet's request concerning whether or not they should pursue the Philistines. So they know something is wrong. Perhaps someone has sinned. And so Saul now utters another oath, takes another vow. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. What do we see here? Saul is showing his foolishness. Or what we might call his his rashness. Why doesn't Saul stop to think? I mean, he's made that first oath, and the result of that first oath was what? The people actually ran headlong into sin 
by devouring the animals without draining the blood. They've lost out on a major military victory because it gave the Philistines opportunity to flee. So why doesn't Saul see the error of his ways? Why doesn't Saul understand that it was actually he who sinned by taking that first oath? Rather than acknowledge it, what does he do now? He's rash. Again, we see his egotism. He is wrapped up with himself. And now he calls down this second oath, there has been sin. And in whoever and whomever, whenever, wherever we find this sin, that individual will die, even if it is my son, Jonathan. Such rashness. I've always imagined Saul with a little pointy beard. I don't know why. Don't ask me. Psychologists might have a heyday with that. I don't know. But I always imagine him with a little pointy beard. And I just want to grab him by the beard, tug, pull him real close, just knock. Is anybody home? Are you thinking, man? Here's a man with no sense. Here's a man who has lost all sense. Is this any way for the king of Israel to be conducting himself? Does he never consider the law of unintended consequences? Why is he unable to see the big picture? Can he not see his own foolhardiness, which has got him into this problem to begin with, and all he's doing now is digging a deeper hole and jumping feet first right into it? What is wrong with this man? He is suffering from spiritual paralysis. And his spiritual paralysis results in what? Foolishness, rashness. Years ago, when I still could, I played soccer on Friday nights with, in a men's league. And a uh, bit of a rough crowd. These guys would uh, bring their pops. And that's why most of them were there, not to, play, uh, not to play soccer, but just for the beer fest afterward. And they would bring this before the game in their, in their ice cooler and uh, yada, yada, yada. And on this one particular Friday, Alan, big strapping fella, showed up with his cooler, plunked it down, and it looked like somebody had taken their pellet gun and just used it for target practice. So like 20, 30 holes all over it. And so the guy, what, what were you doing? Your son used that for target practice? And he began to tell the story that on the previous weekend, he had gone camping up in Algonquin Park, just north of where we lived in Ontario. And he and his wife were out hiking or something like that, came back to their campsite. Cooler was gone. He never stopped to think. They're in the middle of nowhere. Who does he think has taken his cooler? Off he goes, beating it into the forest. Here's his cooler shaking, veers to the right, finds himself face to face with bear. Hat off to Alan, a strapping fella. He got that cooler and he got it back because I think the bear was more frightened to see him than he was to see the bear. But that was rashness. That was foolishness. Stop and think. In this sad story, sorry story, Saul never ever stops to think. Just think, Saul. Think it through. Use your God-given reason to understand your own actions and the repercussions of your rashness. No, he just hurls headlong into it. Why? First of all, his egotism, his selfishness. And out of his selfishness, his rashness, his foolishness, and building on his rashness, his foolishness, we have the third fruit or mark of his spiritual paralysis, stubbornness. Look at verse 44. And Saul said, here's the third vow, God do so to me because the lots have been drawn and has been discovered that it was Jonathan who ate the honey while in the forest. So God do so to me and more also, here's his oath, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Startling. There is no horror on his part. There is no shock on his part. There's no hint of regret. There's no hint of grief. There is simply a man who is so full of himself 
that his rashness consumes him. His foolishness is his governing principle. And to make matters worse, he is hard-headed, hard-hearted, obstinate. And the pilgrim's progress, pilgrim Christian leaves the city of destruction. He's got pliable with him. Forget about pliable. He has somebody else with him, obstinate. I don't know why obstinate set off on that journey. There's a mystery, but for another time. Obstinate sets off on this journey with pilgrim. And obstinate, his goal is to do what? Simply to depress Christian, pilgrim. Simply to contradict everything he says, everything he thinks. Obstinate, he is contentious. He is argumentative. He is combative. He is unwilling to listen. Even when reason is placed before him and put on display, even when all the facts and proofs are lined up against him, even when Scripture is brought to bear upon his life, he is just so obstinate that he will not listen. You ever met anybody like that? Um, Allison and I, there's a young woman in our lives, near and dear to us. Fits her to a T. I don't know how else to describe her. Her life is a mess. I mean, Mid-40s, pushing 50. Life is a, just a mess. I, I couldn't... The catalog of messes and self-destructiveness in her life. And yet I've never met anybody so opinionated in their life, in my life. Just completely falling apart at the seams. Made a mess of absolutely anything and everything. And yet a woman who has an opinion on everything. And a woman who is always, you know what's coming, right. Always right. And just amazes me. I stand there dumbfounded listening to her at times. I, I, I you may find this hard to believe. I preach for an hour, but I'm lost for words. I don't know what to say. I do not want to, because I'm thinking to myself, does she not see? Does she not look at her life, identify the mess, and therefore conclude, I don't have the right to have an opinion on anything? Why, why doesn't she have that thought process? And what makes her actually think that she's right when it comes to every opinion and position she has and every word of counsel she gives? Oh, obstinacy. It is a mark of spiritual paralysis. It flows from that foolishness, that rashness, which flows from that egotism, that selfishness. And here we have Saul. He is the epitome of it. But you know, there's a fourth mark of uh, spiritual paralysis. It's not tied to an oath. It runs through the entire passage. Maybe you noticed it, but I'm going to hazard a guess that most of us probably didn't because it's subtle. But when I declare it, you're going to have an uh, aha moment because this is extremely significant. Listen to this. Here's the fourth mark of spiritual paralysis. Saul cloaks himself with the robe of religiosity. He cloaks his egotism, his selfishness. He cloaks his foolishness. And he cloaks his stubbornness with the robe of religiosity. Just take a quick survey with me. Go all the way back to verse 3. He employs a priest. Verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. All of a sudden, Saul's employed a priest. Look at verse 18. He calls for the ark. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Look at verse 24. We know this one. He orders a fast, which is a spiritual discipline. Nothing wrong with that. Look at verse 33. He rebukes the people's sin. 
They told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. So he even rebukes the people for their, for their ceremonial disobedience. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for your sins upon the altar. And so that blood pointed ultimately to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were forbidden to eat of it because of its significance pointing to the Lord Jesus. They disobey. Saul notes it. Saul rebukes them. Notice in verse 35, he actually constructs an altar. Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And notice verse 37, Saul consults the Lord. And later, verse 41, he uses the Urim and Thummim. We don't know what this is exactly, related to the the high priest breastplate. Something they used, perhaps stones, perhaps lots, rocks, pieces of timber, we don't know. But something they used to determine the Lord's will. Yes, no, simple questions, true, false. And they perhaps put them in a little bag, and they knew which one was positive, which one was negative. They would ask a question, draw it out, they would have their answer. Saul is using this, and the Lord is actually answering. You read this chapter. I mean, this, this, is, this is, I use this expression a lot, but I really mean it this time. This is mind-boggling. This is mind-boggling. Here we have a man struggling with spiritual paralysis arising from his disobedience. This spiritual paralysis is manifesting itself in increasing selfishness, foolishness, harshness, and stubbornness. Yet here's a man getting religion. Here's a man cloaking it all with this robe of religiosity. Matthew Henry states it way better than I ever could. It is common for those that have lost the substance of religion to be most fond of its shadows. That's worth repeating. I learned this lesson. It is common for those who have lost the substance of religion to be most fond of its shadows. Saul is fond of its shadows because he does not have its substance. Put idolatry over here. Put piety, the fear of the Lord, over here. Many times externally, they looked exactly the same. Idolatry and piety, many times externally, look exactly the same. How do you differentiate them? By what's inside. In other words, what motivates them? What motivates idolatry? It is always self-love. What motivates piety, the fear of the Lord? It is always love for God. Here's the contrast. Jonathan over here. It may be that the Lord will work for us because the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Here is a man who lives for the glory of the Lord. Here is a man who loves God and and it is manifested in what? Piety. Saul over here, a man absorbed with self-love. That's his operating principle. A man who walks according to the flesh. A man whose mind is set on the things of the flesh. And he gets very religious. He is cloaking and masking his sin in religiosity because, you see, Saul at the heart, his basic operating principle is still what? It is performance-based. Saul refuses to acknowledge his sin. Saul refuses to prostrate himself before the Lord and come to the Lord as nothing. Saul refuses to repent. Saul refuses to come to a merciful, gracious, good God asking for forgiveness. He is a man who will insist until the day he dies that this is his basic functioning, operating principle, performance-based. And even in this chapter, in the midst of his sin, we see him trying to manipulate the Almighty through his behavior trying to manipulate God through his religion. But here again, the words of Matthew Henry, it is common for those that have lost the substance of religion 
to be most fond of its shadows. Question number three is this. What is the effect? Or what are the uh, repercussions of this spiritual paralysis? I'm going to mention three and then put a blanket statement over them all. Just quickly. Effect number one is this. It prevents, his spiritual paralysis prevents a definitive victory. Look at verse 30. How much better, this is Jonathan speaking, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. People have been too hungry. That was a stupid thing my father did. Stupid, stupid, stupid oath. What was that man thinking? And by making that oath, he has bound the people to this silly, silly vow. And they haven't eaten. And because they haven't eaten, they're about to fall over. They're they're, they're just fading away. And as a result, sure, we've defeated the Philistines. It was a victory. Big deal. It could have been a slaughter. It could have been a major military victory. But you see, his spiritual paralysis, here's the effect. It prevents a definitive victory. Secondly, it provokes others to sin. That's verse 33. Because of this vow, the people are famished. And when they do get their hands on the spoil and the day has set and the vow is over, they fall upon the spoil and they begin to eat the food with its blood, disobeying, driven to it by the lusts of the flesh because of this man-made vow which has been imposed upon them. Third effect is this. It results in the unimaginable. It results in the unimaginable. Verse 44 again, and Saul said, it's just unimaginable. God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. You know, Saul doesn't say, you know, looking back, it's not that long ago, but that, you know, just in, in the heat of the moment, I made that vow. It wasn't very smart. Or, you know, considering the facts, a vow, a vow shouldn't be binding to someone who never heard it in the first place. How can, I, how can Jonathan be held accountable for not obeying something he wasn't part of and didn't even know what I'd put out there? Uh, you, rather, rather than considering the facts... Rather than reflecting on what has transpired, he just hurls headlong into this vow, God do so to me and more also. The unimaginable and and also the harshness of it, the indifference of this egotistical man, you shall surely die, Jonathan. There's a fourth effect, and this is just a blanket statement, blanketing the first three. It comes out of verse 29. Jonathan said, my father has troubled land. There you have it. There's a summary statement of the result, the consequence, the repercussions of spiritual paralysis. My father has troubled the land. It is the same, interesting, it is the same Hebrew word that is used in the previous chapter. When the Philistines first enter the land, the people are troubled. It is the exact word here. Saul is no better. He has troubled the land. And that is the result, that is the fruit, that is the net result, let's say, of spiritual paralysis. Friend, let me speak directly to you. You find yourself in this condition. Do you recognize the consequences? Are you troubling the land? What about your home? Is your spiritual paralysis troubling, defeating, deflating? discouraging your spouse, causing your spouse to fear? Is it troubling our children? What do they behold? What do they see? Do they learn to resent the things of God because of our spiritual paralysis? Learning to be indifferent or rebelling against it because of our spiritual paralysis. What does it do in the context of the local church? 
spiritual paralysis troubles the land. More often than not, people who struggle with spiritual paralysis, professing believers, they don't leave the church, they stay put. They simply fall into legalism. They become extremely cynical, very harsh and judgmental. They they will stay on the fringe, but they'll have an opinion about everything because their goal is to make everyone as miserable as they are. They're those people on Facebook who will put the bombs out there. But they stay on the fringe because they don't want anybody to ever get after them. They don't ever want to be held accountable. They don't ever want anybody to confront them. They don't ever want to be called to task. They want to stay just sort of on the skirts, the fringe. They're sort of there. Are they there or aren't they there? Paralysis. And they become critical and they become cynical and they will voice it. Friend, are you troubling the land? Understand why. It is a direct result of your spiritual paralysis. And your spiritual paralysis is undoubtedly manifested in emotional misery. There's another reason to go to Facebook. You can pick up on that on Facebook pretty quick by people's posts. I didn't mean to say that, but I've said it now and I can't backtrack. (laughs) You can discover pretty quick when people are emotionally miserable. And you know what the the, the real cause is? It's spiritual paralysis. And Saul teaches us this. The basic cause is what? It is willful disobedience. Because willful disobedience always leads to emotional, emotional misery. Fourth question, finally, quickly, what is the solution? We know what the solution is. It's summed up in a word, repentance. Why doesn't this man repent? Why doesn't this man simply fall on his knees? When he's first confronted with his sin through the prophet Samuel, why doesn't he simply say, you know, that was wrong. I I don't know what came over me. I did that, and and I've sinned against God, but I know God is gracious. I know the God of Israel is faithful. I know he is good. I, I know he is merciful. And so I seek his forgiveness. Why doesn't this man do that? There is the only solution, the only answer for spiritual paralysis. It is simply repentance. Simply repentance. Let me give you three facts concerning repentance quickly. The first is this, fact number one. Repentance is essential. In our day, some talk, Speak, preach, counsel as if it isn't, but it is. Repentance is absolutely essential. Uh, let me explain that with, uh, with a statement and try to break it down quickly. We have fallen, many of us have fallen into what one author calls the feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. The feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness, or what I like to call therapeutic forgiveness. The feel-good doctrine of... Uh, Automatic forgiveness. What do I mean by that? It's simply a fruit of cheap grace. What do I mean by cheap grace? Two statements. Cheap grace justifies the sin instead of the sinner. I'm going to leave that just hanging there, suspended in air, and I pray you think it through. Cheap grace justifies the sin instead of the sinner. Second phrase is this. Cheap grace offers comfort without requiring change. It offers comfort without requiring change. It offers forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is the feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. Well, God is forgiving. God's already forgiven you. Just go on your merry way. That is a lie. That is a lie. Second truth is this. Repentance is volitional. It's an act of the will. Regret means I'm sorry mentally. Remorse means I'm sorry emotionally and mentally. Saul experiences regret, and Saul experiences remorse. Repentance means I'm sorry 
mentally, emotionally, and volitionally. Volitionally, Saul never repents. There's lots of regret. There's lots of remorse. But there's never any repentance. It is mental. It is emotional. It is volitional. How do I know I have repented of my sin? I know I have repented of my sin when I am prepared to let go of my sin. That is repentance. Anything short of that is not repentance. Anything short of that is simply regret. That will not get you into heaven. Anything short of that is simply remorse. That will not get you into heaven. There is nothing meritorious about repentance. Repentance is simply a man, simply a woman, understanding that they're spiritually bankrupt and understanding that God is good and salvation rests on God alone. And I don't bring one iota. I don't bring anything to the table. I don't bring any of my works. I simply rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I understand God's love superabounding in His forgiveness. And that breaks me. It breaks my heart. And it compels me to do what? It compels me to forsake my sin. Those coals are too hot to handle. That's what it means to repent. I repent volitionally. And I know I've repented when I'm prepared to let go of it, let go of my sin. And the third truth concerning repentance is this. It is God-honoring. It is so God-honoring. Because it is when we simply come, again, I said it, to an end of ourselves. We're marked by that poverty of spirit, which is so precious in God's sight. Saul never gets there, never goes anywhere near there because he is performance-based, performance-based. When we realize it's not based on our performance, that we bring nothing, we can do nothing, we can offer nothing. It is all of grace. And we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in his substitutionary death, understanding that he bore the guilt and he bore the judgment in the place of sinners. And we rest in his substitutionary life, knowing that he has fulfilled all righteousness. He has obeyed God perfectly. That is what we rest in, and we understand God's love flowing to us through Calvary's cross, through the completed, finished work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love simply breaks our heart for sin. You see, faith and repentance are distinct, but they are inseparable. You can't have not have one without the other. And as we come in faith, our hearts are broken by God's superabounding love as revealed in the Lord Jesus. And that which is so detestable in his sight becomes the object of our enmity. And we repent. We come to Calvary's cross and we realize that our sin is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. And we come to Calvary's cross and we discover that God's love is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. And we repent. Our Father, that is our heartfelt prayer this day. Now, there might be some, many, all gathered here this day whom you might bring to that place of repentance. That humility which is so precious in your sight. We acknowledge our dependence upon the Holy Spirit for this. And so pray that you would send forth your Spirit. Grant us days of refreshing. Humble us for our sin in the light of your word. Bring us to a recognition of who we are and cause us to hold fast to Calvary's cross and that salvation which you have so gloriously and wonderfully provided in your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.